Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnicki. And say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. Very good. Uh, we do this on a weekly basis where we try to sum up some interesting cases, important cases that have an impact on your practice. And the practice of plaintiff lawyers, mostly in California, involving California courts of appeal, uh, California um, Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court. Sean is going to learn a lesson about the United States Supreme Court this year, and then he'll understand the distinction between the California Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court. So, this is a good good episode we have today. Yep. First, before we get to any of the details, Sean, just tell people where they can find us. Sure, you can find us at kbklawyers.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, I don't know where else people listen to podcasts. We've been getting some good feedback. We'd love to hear more. If, if you'd like to get us off the air, there's a petition you could sign. No, and, no, there isn't. No, Please, there isn't? No, okay. There's, and we're not on the air. It's we're just not a podcast. on the air. It's just a recording. Yeah, that's right. We're not live, so if we screw up, we always kind of go back All right. and fix so, so we have an interesting set of cases today, Brian. So this is going to be, this is what we're calling the family show, because the first three cases that Sean's going to describe in a moment involve unhappy families. That's right. That's right. So the first case we're going to cover is a super interesting case with a long tortured history. It involves the estate of John Steinbeck, famous author. Next, we're going to talk about a um, IIED claim by a granddaughter against her grandmother for some really egregious stuff. So very sad, but outrageous conduct there. And televangelists. And, and yeah, it involves the Trinity Christian Center of Santa Ana. So you can see where this is going, maybe. Uh, next, we're going to talk about a dispute between siblings and a motion to compel judicial reference as opposed to a motion to compel arbitration. So we're going to learn about some distinctions there. And then after that, we're, when we're done with the family section, we're going to talk about a Ninth Circuit case that has to do with attorney fees and what work can be claimed in a fee motion. And lastly, we're going to talk about the five-year rule again. And I know every time we talk about that, we say it's hard deadlines, hard deadlines. Sometimes there's wiggle room. Today, we're going to talk about when there's wiggle room. So without further ado, let's go to right. the and top. Our first case is going to involve dramatic readings by me. It's because this opinion, um, it's coming out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. It is authored by Judge Talman, and the opinion borrows from quotes from Steinbeck, from Dickens, and it's and it's written out as a prologue followed by chapters. So let's get started with this case here. Prologue. This suit, in course of time, became so complicated that no two lawyers can talk about it for five minutes without coming to a total disagreement as to the premises. Innumerable children have been born into the cause. Innumerable young people have married into it, and sadly, the original parties have died out of it. A long progression of judges has come in and gone out during the time, and still the suit drags its weary lengths before the court. Charles Dickens, Bleak House. So this involves a dispute between... Um, Elaine Steinbeck, the widow of John Steinbeck, who has also since passed away. So it's brought through the executrix of her estate. Do you know what an executrix is, Brian? Yep. What is an executrix? I'm just doing the dramatic readings. Okay. An executrix is the female version of an executor of her estate. And it also involves the sons of John Steinbeck from a previous marriage who have, I believe, also passed away. So that those are the players in this. There ain't no sin and there ain't no virtue. They're just stuff people do. It's all part of the same thing. And some of the things folk do is nice, and some ain't nice. But that's as far as any man got a right to say. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath. 
John, Ste- John Steinbeck passed away in 1968, and uh, needless to say, he has a lot of intellectual property, including the trademark, the uh, copyrights for Grapes of Wrath, Mice and Men, East of Eden, The Pearl, uh, a lot of different uh, works that he had put out, and he left most of it to his third wife, Elaine. However, uh, there was some disputes that arose out of a 1974 agreement between Elaine and John's sons from a previous marriage. So the sons ended up suing Elaine in um, New York and lost that litigation. And then it followed a long, tortured history of more and more litigation. Ultimately, after losing multiple times in the Second Circuit in federal court over there, there was a 1983 agreement entered into, a stipulated judgment entered into, foregoing all further litigation. But they came back and they started suing in federal court in California. And all of it culminated with a uh, decision in 19, uh, 2017 where this very court affirmed a district court's 2015 ruling um, holding that they lose on everything and barring any further appeals and further litigation. Chapter 2. An unbelieved truth can hurt a man much more than a lie. John Steinbeck, East of Eden. So this leads to this litigation. Um, in 2014, after the last time that Tom and Blake, the uh, the sons of John Steinbeck, lost, Kafaga, who is the executrix of Elaine's estate, brought this uh, lawsuit seeking um, damages for slander of title, tortious interference with economic advantage, and ultimately punitive damages. After a five-day jury trial, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict, and this is what they awarded. They awarded $1.3 million for the breach of contract claim, $1.3 million for a slander of title claim, $2.65 million for the economic intentional uh, interference claim, and $7.9 million for the punitive damages claim, including $5.9 million against one of the people that had brought the uh, underlying lawsuits. Chapter 3. There's more beauty in truth, even if it is a dreadful beauty. John Steinbeck, East of Eden. So this is the chapter where the court kind of out, uh, goes over the standards for review. Summary judgment is re- re- reviewed de novo. The jury's verdict and the amount of damages re- is reviewed for substantial evidence. The motion for new trial is reviewed for abuse of discretion. And um, it kind of goes over all of those different standards here. Chapter four. Can it be that haters of clarity have nothing to say, have observed nothing, have no clear picture of even their own fields? John Steinbeck. The log from the Sea of Cortez. And um, in this section, the court ultimately affirms the order granting summary judgment in favor of the executrix of the estate of the widow and uh, finds that there was, uh, there, there was no problem there with granting all of those on the grounds of collateral estoppel. Chapter 5. And now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. John Steinbeck, East of Eden. And this is where the court looks at the compensatory damages award and finds that there was enough evidence here. It kind of goes over the history of all the conduct and all the egregious stuff that they had done and all the ongoing litigation and finds that there was enough evidence. There's sufficient evidence there. Chapter six, intentions, good or bad, are not enough. John Steinbeck, the winter of our discontent. So this is where we're kind of getting to the, to the gist of the decision. Uh, first, the court reviews the threshold question uh, when it comes to punitive damages as to whether there was fraud or malice. And ultimately, the court holds that there is more than ample evidence of defendant's malice in the record to support the jury's verdict. And that is what triggers the entitlement to punitive damages. Chapter 7. 
With a few exceptions, people don't want money. They want luxury, and they want love, and they want admiration. John Steinbeck, East of Eden. And here is where court kind of gets into the substantive discussion and what we wanted to talk about. Um, and it reviews whether or not the punitive damage is excessive. So the first question they have to look at is whether it's excessive or raises a presumption that is the product of passion or prejudice. That comes from a big seminal punitive damages California case called Adams versus Murakami. Um, that's a great case to read. We deal with this often when defendants try to reduce the punitive damages award or try to overturn it. And one of the first things that you look at in the inquiry is the ratio between the uh, punitive damages and the defendant's net worth. And that's the problem over here. The award against uh, against Gail, the, uh, the daughter-in-law of John Steinbeck, I guess, um, who was a defendant in the lawsuit, was uh, basically overturned by this court because there wasn't enough evidence of Gail's financial condition. Whatever was put on was kind of conclusory and just showed how much she gets. And that ratio over there between the damages and the defendant's net worth was was too high. So the court ultimately says that, no, you can't have the punitive damages against Gail. Chapter 8. We asked a gentleman by us if he knew what cause was on. He told us Steinbeck. We asked him if he knew what was doing in it. He said, really, no, he did not. Nobody ever did. But as well as he could make out, it was over. Over for the day, we asked him? No. He said, over for good. Over for good. Charles Dickens, Bleak House. So that that quote is a little ironic because it's technically not over for good, but the district court, uh, the, sorry, the the panel here recommends to the district court to consider Kafka's request for an injunction to put an end to this recidivist litigation. Uh, so that that's kind of how this all shakes out. They just want this to go away once and for all. In the words of in the words of Charles Dickens, they want it to be over for good. So that ends our uh, dramatic reading for the day. Do you think I have a future in like books on tape? Probably not. And I hope that people didn't find it too boring, but it's just kind of fun to have an opinion like that. Have we gotten so nerdy that we, we got excited when we- We got haven't it? gotten so nerdy. We've, we've been, been there we've been. all along. We've been. Absolutely. We've we, been. We do a, a podcast on cases. Yeah, that's true. I that's mean, pretty, there's not much nerdy. more nerdy than that yeah. you could get. This was, But this was the most fun we have. So now let's keep on our family theme and go to the family involving oh, yeah. the uh, Trinity Broadcast Network yep. and uh, televangelists. Yep. And this case involves, it's called Kara Crouch versus Trinity Christian Center of Santa Ana. And coming out of the uh, 4th DCA. And these are, these are just unbelievable facts. So uh, this isn't a particularly deep opinion here for us. Uh, I think there's some couple important issues and take away from it, but the facts are just absolutely incredible. And and it's not funny. It's kind of outrageous. It's ridiculous, the position that the defendants took here, but but let's set it up. So Kara Crouch is the granddaughter of Jan Crouch. Who is Jan Crouch, Brian? Well, she's no longer alive, but she, I think, and her husband founded the Trinity Broadcast Network and were televangelists and were fairly well-known. I think she passed away several years ago, but it was fairly well-known. And this case goes back um, several years because it was brought um, when Kara was an adult, but it involved 
the conduct that occurred when, when she, she was, was a teenager, right? 13. Yeah. So 13. Cara, so Kara Crouch, yeah, teenager is almost a misnomer because that's it, it's Barely really sad. Barely a teenager. Kara right. Crouch at age 13 goes to a telethon being taped in Atlanta and a 30, For the network. For the network, yep. And a 30-year-old employee of the network, of the Trinity Christian Center of Santa Ana, drugs and rapes her. There is no dispute as to whether that happened or not. Drugs and rapes her. And then so, Kara comes back to Southern California where the church is based. Yep. And she and her mother, who's Tawny. the daughter-in-law, yep. Tawny's the daughter-in-law of, of, of Jan, of the founder, go to meet with grandma. And they say, we've got a real problem here. Let me tell you what happened. It's terrible. They meet with her in her home in Newport Beach because I think that's so important to set this up. Their, their home in Newport Beach tells them about being raped and um, that they need to do something about this. What and, is Grandma Jan's reaction? Well, man? she goes into a tirade, but not at the employee, no? not at the church, not at the no? supervisors. Oh, boy. But instead, she starts yelling at the granddaughter and says, how could you be so stupid? How could you drink alcohol? How could you let this man in your room? Well, it's your fault, and you're the one who let this happen. Yep. And... Subsequently, Kara decides to sue Grandma, sue Jan Crouch, and the church, actually, because um, she argued that Jan Crouch was was acting in her capacity as a director of the Trinity Christian Center of Santa Ana when she said those statements, and sues her for IIED. Right. For inflicting emotional, intentionally inflicting emotional distress. Intentional and negligent? And so the real question, I think it's intentional, certainly intentional because she intended to say it. And the question here was whether or not the conduct was extreme and outrageous. And what was Kara, Kara gets a, get, gets an award, by the way, right? right? Kara gets an award of $2 million, later remitted down to $900,000. Which and is kind of surprisingly low that is in my humble low. opinion. Yeah, but, yeah. but the issue on appeal. So then the church appeals. The church appeals. And not only does the church appeal, but while the case is pending in the trial court, uh, the, the church argues, first of all, they demur to the complaint. They file a summary adjudication motion. They file a motion for non-suit, denied. They file a J OV denied, a motion for a new trial denied, and but the church argues the whole time while filing these motions. This language isn't outrageous. It's There's not extreme. nothing extreme about this language here. Rather, how was Jen acting? In, in fact, she was acting grandmotherly. Grandmotherly what scolding. What kind and of a grandmother? Irascible behavior. Irascible. Kind of grandmother says, it's your fault. You encouraged the 30-year-old man to come into your, to your hotel room. In fact, the damages that Kara, the 13-year-old girl who was drugged and raped, suffered were nothing more than insults, petty indignities, and annoyances. And the court says... No way. No way. No way. We do not hesitate to exclaim outrageous when presented with the facts of Jan Crouch's behavior towards the 13-year-old girl. Flying to a tirade at a 13-year-old who had been drugged and raped and yelling at her that it was stupid and it was her fault is extreme under all circumstances. So um, they find that to be extreme conduct, that, and they go on to say words matter and words make a difference, and that can lead to um, intentional or negligent infliction of emotional distress. I don't think it was a difficult call for them to make. And we don't the, want anyone to think that these are the lower limits of IIED. Uh, right. This is probably. But words make a difference, upper. and I think that's yep. important out of the ruling that it can't yeah, be. Yeah, that not words just alone, words alone can make words a difference. Words matter. Yeah. And then the, the other issue in the case was whether or not they were talking to her as a grandmother in, in the church said, hey, it was just a conversation between a grandmother, 
her daughter-in-law and her granddaughter, and and it has nothing to do with the church. And um, the court didn't buy that either. They said no, that she was she was an officer, she was a director, and they went to her specifically to talk about an issue involving the church. Yep. So, so good case, e- easy case. So uh, keeping on our family theme, let's go all the way up to Fresno. J.H. Boyd Enterprises versus Kenneth Robert Boyd. You heard two of the same last names there. That's because there's a dispute between family members again. So it's out of the 5th Appellate District. Fresno. 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 Uh, I guess father founds this company, J.H. Boyd Enterprises, Inc. Uh, he turns the reins over in 2014 to his daughter and not to his son. The son's frozen out of the company. That's not really what the case is about. But at some point in time, the son takes a uh, $2 million loan, uh, I guess, on a, from the company and, and secures Prom- it with a promissory note, note. Yep, on, on real property, right? And the question here really arises out of... Well, the first issue in the case, sure. the very first issue, which is quickly disposed of, is this involved an arbitration agreement, but it wasn't a pre-dispute binding arbitration agreement. In other words, it didn't say, hey, we agree that if there's ever a dispute, we'll submit it to arbitration. It's really a post-dispute arbitration agreement that says, if we both agree after the fact, we can submit this specific dispute to arbitration. But the company didn't agree because they wanted to judicially foreclose on the property. In other words, through court, they wanted a foreclosure uh, through a court action. And they said, well, we can't do that through arbitration. We're not going to go to arbitration. And by the way, as an aside, that kind of arbitration agreement I never have a problem with because parties after a dispute arises can always agree to arbitrate their disputes. It's the pre-dispute binding arbitration agreement. So then, shot we get to the issue you want to talk about. Right. The, the, the big issue here and the distinction that the court draws is between uh, a motion to compel arbitration and a motion to compel a uh, judicial reference. And a judicial reference is something that comes out of a civil uh, Code of Civil Procedure Section 638 that allows for someone other than the court to decide a dispute. It's usually someone that has to be qualified and approved by the actual court that has jurisdiction, like an arbitrator, a retired judge, a mediator, someone like that, someone at JAM, someone at AAA, um, or somewhere like that. And then the the um, finding or award by that other person, that non-court entity, has to be approved or confirmed by the trial court. And the trial court retains jurisdiction over the matter. The court of appeal thereby retains jurisdiction over the matter. So, so that's what that is. So an important point to understand about this is that if we look at arbitration agreements, we know that, that the law is flawed in California in the sense that a denial of a petition to arbitrate is directly appealable, which means that any party who brings a a, a motion to arbitrate, whether it's meritorious or not, has a right to appeal. It can stop the litigation while it crawls up to the court of appeal. But here the question was, is it the same rule for the denial of a motion to compel judicial reference? Because here the judicial reference was denied. And what what the defendant in this case was arguing is that the right to um to appeal that is a direct appeal, right? So it's it's not a writ, it's a direct appeal. And interestingly, the court said this is an issue of first impression. impression. There's no cases on point uh, directly about this and um, and ultimately says that uniformly to grant or denial of a request to enforce a judicial reference provision is reviewed by writ and it's not necessarily directly appealable. So that's kind of, I think, the big decision that well, comes and, out of this, and right? That's a good decision, and also the, that highlights the fact that the appealability of a denial of a petition to arbitrate 
is statutory and it can be changed statutorily. And that's something I remember working on um, in the legislature, my, my work lobbying um, a while ago, we weren't able to get any traction on that, which I, I think would be a great rule is that once a um, an order is granted um, or denying a, an arbitration, that they should be able to have a um, no direct right of appeal. It should be only by writ. Yeah, I mean, that would be a good change in the law. But this case is good because it kind of makes that distinction and it says, no, 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 this isn't the same because defendants here or the, the party seeking to enforce the, uh, the judicial reference was arguing that it's the functional equivalent of the denial of arbitration and therefore it's properly before this court. Nope. And the court says, no, it's not. Nope. And that's good because you can see uh, – Defendants, uh, you know, corporations getting sneaky and putting this in consumer agreements, and then arguing it's the same as a arb agreement, and therefore it's appealable. When sadly, it's they sadly they're going to just continue to put arbitration agreements in. But it'd be interesting yeah. if we could make arbitration yeah. not appealable, denial not appealable. Okay, let's go on to the next case. This is Roberts versus the City and County of Honolulu. Where's Honolulu? It's in Hawaii. Very good. Which is it's, part of the United States. I recently learned that's correct. And yeah. you know what language they speak? It's one there? of the fifty-two states. You know what language they speak? English. They speak English. And Hawaiian. And Hawaiian. And do you, know what, do you know what money they use there? I have no idea. It's the U.S. dollar. Oh, wow. Because it's a state. It's a state, like Puerto Rico. No, no, Sean, but we'll we'll explain this later. Okay, I don't we'll, want to we'll waste dig into this. I'll start time. doing some legal research. All right. On- This is um, this is a good case because it involves a um, statutory attorney fees for civil rights for civil right action. So just to set the stage, a, a non-U.S. citizen but a permanent resident of the United States was attempting to get a permit for a firearm. So it's a Second Amendment issue, um, and the city was denying him because they wanted um, some kind of a clearance from, from the his home he country. Was from. Yeah, or something. Yeah. The court said that, or the the. The ultimate issue was whether or not that was constitutional. And uh, just to very quickly set it, what happened is the lawyer was working on, simultaneously working on settling the issue with the city and also uh, a preliminary injunction. So he's working on litigating it while also trying to settle it. Not a a particularly novel concept, something that we all do all the time. We work on it. We hope that we're going to get something settled. We're having settlement discussions, but we don't stop what we're doing. So ultimately, the city agrees to the injunction or to settle it. And they also agree that they're going to pay attorney fees. And then there's a contested motion for attorney fees that's brought. And here's kind of where it gets interesting because what does the magistrate judge and the district court do? Uh, the So the application submitted by the lawyers was looking for something like, um, I think, around 300 an hour for one lawyer, 225 an hour for the other lawyer, which, look, at first glance, it's not outrageous. And then when you look into it a little bit closer, it's not outrageous at all because this is civil rights work. This is serious stuff. And the applications I've seen, I haven't seen a lawyer in my time make an application for fees with a lower hourly rate than this. And these are senior guys. But ultimately, the magistrate says, nope, going to reduce it to 200 for uh, – I'm going to recommend reduce reduction uh, for 200 an hour for one guy and 150 an hour for another guy. And and frankly, you know, that I find that insulting. Uh, the, oh, yeah. The, I mean, you know, I mean, I recognize really that when you leave, you leave Los Angeles or San Francisco or major cities, the rates do go down and that's an issue in the case. Um, but then the other issue here was the court seemed to have discounted or, or um, deducted most of the time that was spent on the simultaneous work on a motion for a preliminary injunction. Mm-hmm. So the two issues in this case are what's the proper rate and does the lawyer get compensated for work that they're doing while they're in settlement negotiations? 
And the Court of Appeal says that, first of all, in terms of the, the rate that was being used or the rate that was recommended by the magistrate, there is no substantiation of why it should be reduced. There's no analysis of what the rates are in the community. And it kind of clarifies that that's what the standard is. You have to look at what the prevailing rates are in the community and not just the geographic community. Right, Brian? Right. But the ge- it has to be both the geographic community and the particular practice area, and those are relevant. So they look at Hawaii, and then they look at civil rights litigation in Hawaii. So that's the first issue that they send back to the court to look at those two issues. And then the second issue that they look at is this concept of dual tracking, and should the lawyer be compensated for dual tracking? Yeah, and And that's where kind of the the other element of this case is, and they say that it's not surprising and it's not rare for a lawyer to work on trying to settle the case and work out the terms of a settlement while also preparing it for litigation and continuing to do legal work on it. And, you know, for lawyers that do this particular kind of work when you're doing civil rights litigation and important work like that, the court even goes on to say they should recover a full fee for excellent results. And obviously they won here, they got it. And I guess what kind of irks me about this is that lawyers like this take on cases um, that may not be in the spotlight, that may not be big money cases. They're not getting paid by the client. They're doing it with the expectation they're going to get fees at the end of the day and then to have their fees reduced. So ultimately a good result because the court, the Ninth Circuit sends it back to the district court to consider both issues uh, and to consider whether or not the work um, was continuous and necessary because there wasn't actually a settlement at the time. And then the only question I have is, um, does the lawyer get a fees for this appeal? I, I hope so. Uh, another fun tidbit here in a word of advice. Uh, so one of the lawyers trying to substantiate his fee submitted you know, declarations detailing his education experience and things like that, uh, declarations from other attorneys in Hawaii who were familiar with his work, and a uh, declaration from a plumber. And I, I, it was probably the court doesn't go into why he submitted it, but I'm assuming it's to, you know maybe the plumber said, "Hey, I get three hundred dollars an hour. This lawyer should get three hundred bucks an hour too." And the court of appeal said, uh, in a parenthetical, that it's ill-advised for the lawyer to submit a declaration of a plumber. Hey, I think it's I think it's super clever. I thought it was creative. Yeah, <laughs> big applause to that lawyer yeah. for submitting. Well, to show that you know other other people who in don't other have professions, the, yeah. 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 All right. And our last case today is InRay Alpha Media Resort investment cases. This apparently was some kind of an investment scam that went that probably went bad from day one. It was probably always a scam. I guess there were criminal prosecutions. People pled guilty. There was a ultimate loss of think something like one hundred and seventy million dollars. Several hundred people filed lawsuits. The, the litigation was consolidated. Um, the def- one of the defendants in this case was actually indicted for for fraud or whatever the conduct was that led to this right, litigation. Right, which is a key issue. With. Which is a key yep. issue here because of the yep. simultaneous criminal prosecution with a civil action. And if any of you have ever been involved in that situation, uh, you know that it can be somewhat dicey because of the constitutional rights of the criminal defendant versus the rights of your client. It could be very frustrating. But ultimately, what happened here is sort of irony is that. After stalling this case for a very long time, more than five years, one of the alleged wrongdoers brings a motion to dismiss based on the five-year rule and says, well, it's been more than five years. So very quickly, Sean, what's the five-year rule again? You have to bring a case to trial uh, within five years. That's from uh, CCP Code uh, Section 583. And uh, what was the ultimate holding in this case? Uh, the court said while the, that that deadline is a hard deadline, um, 
here it's the defendant that made it impossible for the plaintiff to bring it in uh, bring it to trial within five years and he never even though five years passed the defendant never raised this argument the the five-year rule argument until long after the five years had passed um it was the defendant that was delaying and then the defendant said well we had no choice we didn't intentionally delay there was uh, there, there were criminal proceedings that were pending we need to wait for those criminal proceedings to resolve it wasn't we didn't force the delay that's just a matter of circumstance. And the court said, no, that's not a valid response to our argument that you delayed. In fact, you could have had these trials proceed and argued the Fifth Amendment and objected to the questions. And we did those objections as they came in. Right. And that's really the second issue in the case is that whether or not, because the defendants argue in this case, that the action should have been stayed pending the complete resolution of all federal cases. Uh, it's frustrating when that happens, but here the court didn't do that. In fact, what the court said was, uh, the trial court, they said, no, we're going to, you know, move forward with the case. And the, um, uh, the Ninth Circuit, this is a Ninth Circuit case? Have I lost my mind? No, this is a uh, first appellate district case. That's a California. state court case. That's that's California state court. Uh, so there's two sets of courts. There's a federal set of courts. Really? And then there's each state has its own set of How'd courts. How'd that work? Yeah. Well, I'll explain it to you later, Brian. It's so okay. the court of appeal in this case says, no, there's nothing wrong with this case continuing and that there are definitely ways that trial courts can deal with issues such as whether or not the defendants can actually assert the Fifth Amendment, how they're going to proceed with it, and that ultimately you have to balance the concern about their Fifth Amendment rights, their criminal rights, versus the interest of justice in moving forward with the case. So a good case. If someone's making that five-year rule argument to you and you think it's not because you screwed up and waited around too long, this is a good case to check out to try to oppose that type of motion. To ask the trial court to balance the factors. If you find it in a situation like this, ask them to balance the interest of your clients. I've been involved in litigation where judges have simply held the case up forever uh, because of a, of a pending criminal matter, because the prosecutor may come into court and say, hold this case up, hold this case up, and they defer to that. And it's really unfortunate because ultimately at the end of the day, our justice system is about criminal and civil. The criminal is about punishing the wrongdoers, but the civil is about um, bringing justice to the people who have been harmed, and that's that's unfortunate. So great group of cases today. Thank you very much for listening in. Um, we really appreciate your feedback. We appreciate hearing from people that they've been listening to this, so please reach out and let us know. You can find us online at kbklawyers.com, and you should also check out some of the bonus content we're putting up, uh, which features interviews with various trial attorneys in our community that we recorded live at the we're putting those on online though, right? We're putting them online and people can listen. Yeah, it's not on the air. It's not going to be a live, live. live. We did them live, but they weren't broadcast live, Brian. We recorded them just like we're recording today. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So we're putting those out slowly and, and, and you can check them out and, and hear interesting stories. If you find the law stuff that we're doing kind of boring, all these cases, and if you find no. crime boring, you, you can have a chance now to hear other people talk instead of just me and Brian. So please check them out and leave us your feedback and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening in. See you next time. Thanks. Bye.